prophet near the end of the Old Testament. Minor in the sense that it is small. As a musician, I grew up thinking that major and minor meant that the major prophets were happy prophets and the minor prophets were sad. It's not true at all. Minor prophets are just smaller books. The major prophets are bigger books. Habakkuk is a minor prophet, just a very short book. Um, We're going to start a new sermon series in it that I've entitled Faith Through Fog. Faith Through Fog. Habakkuk is living in a fog of sorts. Uh, When when you're driving through the fog, you can see a little bit, uh, but some of that is out of context. You don't see what's going on around it. You don't see what's going on further ahead. And that's where Habakkuk finds himself. He sees all these things in front of him that are very upsetting, actually. Frustrating would be a good word for it. And uh, and he does not see what God is doing behind all of that trouble. So the book of Habakkuk is God breaking through that fog and revealing that he is indeed in control. And so Habakkuk's call is to be faithful even though he doesn't see everything, even though he doesn't understand everything that God is doing, hence the title Faith Through Fog. So we're in Habakkuk this morning. We'll read just the first few verses, Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you, violence? And you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Father, what a discouraging passage of Scripture. That's what Habakkuk sees. He sees what's wrong in the world around him. And Father, we can be in that same position. We see how the world around us is bad and getting worse. Lord, help us to trust you when we don't understand why you're allowing things to go on the way that they do. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning and how we can apply it in light of the greater context of what you're doing in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a couple reasons I want to do the book of Habakkuk. Uh, One reason is I actually preached through the book of Habakkuk about nine years ago, and I did a terrible job. Okay, maybe it wasn't that bad, uh, but any preacher that's been preaching for any amount of time, looking back on sermon series that I've done before, I'm like, man, I wish I would have done this better. I wish I would have done this differently. So part of it is I want to go through this book again. Uh, Another part is I know at least some of my weaknesses as a preacher, and one of my weaknesses is being able to relate the Old Testament effectively to the church. I can give you all the history, I can explain what the text is and and the context of what it was, but I've never been very good at actually seeing uh, kind of a a Christ-centered purpose in the Old Testament, and I should see that. There's this problem in in churches uh, 
today of all sizes and varieties is how do we handle the Old Testament? Some parts of the Old Testament are pretty easy to see how they impact us. Let's think about Genesis 3 for a moment. The first sin. The tempter is there, and he deceives Eve. And Adam's there with Eve, and Adam takes of the fruit and eats, and there's that first sin. Does that impact us today? Oh, yes. Absolutely, because we are all sinners. Thank you, Adam and Eve. We can easily see how that relates to us. And it's not just some sort of philosophical or mental leap that gets us from Genesis chapter 3 to us today. The New Testament clearly tells us as much. Romans 5, 19. Paul not only connects Genesis 3 to the church, he connects it to Jesus. Romans 5, 19 says this, For just as through one man's disobedience the one were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. One man, Adam, sinned, everyone becomes a sinner. But Jesus, one man, his righteousness, his death on the cross, his obedience to God, makes the many saved. So he connects Jesus to Genesis chapter 3 for us. That's helpful. Because that gives us uh, an, an idea of, of the fact that we as the church should be able to connect the Old Testament to the new, to, uh, to the church. The last Old Testament book that I preached through was the book of Ruth. And I do think I did a better job of connecting that to the church than I had previous uh, previous uh, books of the Old Testament, uh, but even that book is easier to connect it because there's all sorts of themes in the book of Ruth that really relate to the church. Think of grace, the giving of that which is not deserved, the theme of this brokenness being resolved by grace. You have the foreign woman named Ruth who's taken care of her Jewish mother-in-law. Remember, Ruth's husband has died uh, her mother-in-law's husband had died. She's a widow alone in a foreign land. And so Ruth says, I will go with you back to your homeland, Israel, and I will take care of you. We see Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who marries Ruth and thus provides for her and for Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Of course, the big finale at the, at the end of Ruth that just is amazing Ruth ends up being, what, the great-grandmother of King David. It means that Ruth, this foreigner from a foreign land, this nobody from nowheresville that is, comes into Israel just, just to help her mother-in-law, becomes someone who is part of the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Amazing story. And actually fairly easy to relate to the church. Other events of the Old Testament, such as Abraham taking his son Isaac and sacrificing him. Taking him to this altar and even raising the knife up to his neck to slaughter him. And, and the angel saying, no, stop. The picture of the father slaying the son. But then because this isn't actually God the father slaying actual God the son in that moment, this is just a picture. He stops him and provides a substitute, which is also a picture of Jesus Christ our substitute dying in our place. But when we get to the book of Habakkuk, a book of prophecy, it's a little bit harder. And, and so I'm telling you all this because not only do I want to grow in how I 
work through passages of the Old Testament. I want to work through that with you so that as you're reading Old Testament passages of Scripture, you try to find how does that fit in God's redemptive narrative that goes from Genesis through Revelation. How does that fit and apply to us? Because it does apply to us. The book of Habakkuk is a book of prophecy. So at the time that it was written, it was yet future events. However, it's not prophecy to us anymore because they've already happened. The things that, uh, that Habakkuk, now there are Old Testament prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet. Uh, but in Habakkuk, the vast majority, if not all of his prophecies have been fulfilled. Uh, so even though we'll call it prophecy because it was foretelling the future at the time it was written, to us it's history. So what do we do with fulfilled Old Testament history? Is it just a nice bit of information to know? Or is there something that we need to see for ourselves? Well, part of what we want to do is look at the Old Testament the way the New Testament writers looked to the Old Testament. We know very well 2 Timothy 3, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God, is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for instruction, reproof, correction, for doctrine, for all those things. But do we know the verses before that? Here's 2 Timothy 3, 14. Paul writing to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What are the sacred scriptures that Timothy knew that were able to make him wise for salvation? It was not John 3.16. It was the Old Testament, right? Now, if the Old Testament could teach Timothy how to believe in Jesus Christ, then certainly we need to be able to see that ourselves. Timothy was wise for salvation because of the Old Testament. And of course, faithful parents and grandparents that taught him the Old Testament. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to experts in the Old Testament scripture. And he tells them this in, in John chapter 5 verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. But you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. Jesus is telling these experts in the Old Testament that they stand condemned before God because even though they knew the Old Testament scripture that talked about the Messiah, that talked about Jesus, when they saw Jesus face to face, they rejected him. The Old Testament is sufficient for knowing Jesus and should have been sufficient for those in Jesus' day to recognize him. And some did. Later in that same chapter, John chapter 5, verse 46, he continues, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. Now, did Moses write the name Jesus? Yes and no. Jesus is the uh, Greek word for the Old Testament word of Joshua. Did Moses write about Joshua? Yes. Uh, did he write about Jesus specifically by name? No, but he talked about the Messiah. He talked about the promises of God, and everything that is in the Old Testament is fulfilled through Jesus in one way, shape, or form. Jesus taught like this all throughout his ministry. 
that when, he's re- when Jesus is reading the Old Testament, if we were to, to uh, read over his shoulder, as it were, to be with him as he was reading the Old Testament, how would he understand it? He would understand himself as being the fulfillment of everything that he was reading. That's the way he taught. Fast forward to after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. A few verses later, Luke 24, 44. He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now both of these verses that I read from you for for you from Luke 24, uh, happen on the same evening. The first is with two men as Jesus is walking uh, with them uh, for, on a road to a town called Emmaus. And they, they don't understand what's been going on. And he shares with them how he is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And then later that night, he's with more of his disciples and says the same thing, that all that was written in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That, that three classifications is the way uh, the Jewish people referred to the whole of the Old Testament. So Jesus, in his own words, is saying through this very brief conversation, this isn't a seminary class, he doesn't go into great detail, he, but he gives them a framework for understanding the Old Testament in light of himself. And so therefore, unlocking the Old Testament, as it were, to, under, to be understood in the church age. Another passage of scripture, Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus speaking again, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from, from the law until all things are accomplished. If you prefer to call the smallest letter and the smallest stroke of a letter a jot and tittle, go ahead. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, the, the fact that the law is complete and will not pass away until all is fulfilled, and he is the one to fulfill it. He didn't come to abolish the wall or to abolish the law or to somehow kill the law or destroy it or whatever. He came to fulfill the law. Now, if Jesus, in so many, uh, so many instances, more even than what I read here, if Jesus uh, continued to teach that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, then would it not behoove us to be people who look into the Old Testament to find out how he fulfilled it? Can't believe I just said the word behoove. What I have written is here is, don't we have a solemn obligation to see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The New Testament makes clear that Jesus is central to the Old Testament. One author put it this way in a very convicting way, which is why I'm going to read it for you. He writes, At some point you must ask yourself, how does the centrality of Jesus Christ affect the way that I handle the biblical texts? If a thoughtful Muslim or a Jew would be satisfied with my interpretation of the Old Testament, could it really be Christian? 
If a preacher fails to interpret and apply the Old Testament in light of Christ, his Old Testament preaching will inevitably be sub-Christian. Practically speaking, he may exalt God, commend faith, and encourage holy living, but do so without any explicit connection to Jesus and the gospel. Such a sermon is fit for a synagogue or a mosque. Ouch. And see... Orthodox Jews, those who do not believe in Jesus, a a Jewish person who believes Jesus is the Messiah, we call a Messianic Jew. But an Orthodox Jew, someone who adheres to the Old Testament, if they could listen to a sermon that I preach or a lesson that I teach or, or just any discussion that any of us would have about the Old Testament, and if they would be in full agreement with everything that we say, then we have had a Jewish sermon and not a Christian one. Because what is the Christian Bible? The Christian Bible is not the New Testament alone. The Christian Bible is all 66 books of the canon, right? That means the Old Testament is our scripture. Muslims accept at least portions of the, whole, of the Old Testament as holy scripture. If we can go through a passage of scripture, the Old Testament, and a, a Muslim person would be wholeheartedly agreement with everything that we say, we've done something wrong. So one of my goals in the book of Habakkuk is to make sure that we keep in mind that this book is, though originally written for Israel, is for the church today. It's a lot of background. Let's look at verse 1 so we can dig into some more background. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Habakkuk is a prophet, and this is simply the title verse. A little brief history of Judah in this time. Uh, We have King Saul, King David, King Solomon. After King Solomon, the kingdom is divided. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin constitute what what we call Judah, They are the southern kingdom, and the rest of the tribes constitute the northern kingdom. And around 720 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken into captivity, taken to Assyria, never to fully return. At that time, Hezekiah was king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he did what was right in the sight of God. Hezekiah, good king. Manasseh, bad king. He reigned for 55 years, worshipped all sorts of idols, We see him participating in demonic activity, child sacrifice. I mean, you name it, this man was evil. And 2 Chronicles 33.9 says that he did more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. The, The evil nations that God wiped out on behalf of Israel, Manasseh was worse. At some point, Manasseh does repent, but it's too late. Everyone is kept with their pagan worship. His son Ammon was evil. He only lasted two years because his servants killed him. Ammon's son Josiah is made king, but he follows the Lord and becomes uh, a balm on this wound of evil that has happened in the nation of Israel. At age 26, Josiah restarts starts restoring the temple. They found the ancient scrolls. They found the scripture and started reading it and it changed them. Imagine that. Reading the word of God changes your life. That's what happened to Josiah. 
And so he restarts temple worship, observes the Passover, and the people follow him. At this point in history, politically, there are only two superpowers. There's Egypt and Assyria. And there's this up-and-coming power that hasn't quite made big waves yet. Uh, It's called Babylon or Chaldea, and we know that name, don't we? Babylon is on the rise, and so Egypt and Assyria get together to take them up. The Egyptians want to go through Judah to get Uh, to get to Babylon and to restrain the growth. And Josiah says, no. Josiah was the last of the good kings. He he dies as a result of this battle. Um, Josiah was the last of the good kings in Judah. Two of his sons become the next kings. They are rotten. Josiah's grandson becomes the third king in line. He's rotten. And it's in this interim few years after Josiah's death, but before the destruction of Jerusalem, that Habakkuk finds himself. Being able to remember the good old days of Josiah. That was the point of going through the history of the kings. To remember how bad life had been in Israel when they had an evil king. How good it was when they had a king who followed God in Josiah. He could remember the blessings of God, whether he, whether he remembers it firsthand or whether it's, uh, it's from uh, that, uh, that civic memory of people talking about it, remember when Josiah was king. He remembers the blessings of God during Josiah's reign, and he sees the spiritual progress that is being undone the farther they get from that time period. And so we see here in verse 2, the fog. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Our big idea this morning is that God's people long for righteousness. Habakkuk longs for righteousness. Do you sense the frustration of being left in the dark? See, Habakkuk is a prophet of God. He knows who God is. He knows what God is capable of. He knows that God knows everything and that he has power and authority over all things. So he knows that what's happening is not because God is incompetent or uh, doesn't have the, the capacity to fix what's going on. God does know and God does have power. So Habakkuk is like, what gives I'm crying out for help. Please rescue us. Save us. And you don't even seem to hear. In his frustration, we see a confidence and a boldness to approach God. He does so with this this lament, this crying out against the evil that he sees. Sometimes, sometimes we need to just vent, don't we? As a husband, as a father, as a friend, and as a pastor, there are many times where I'm just a sounding board, where someone needs to vent. They didn't come for counsel. They just need to get something off their chest, and then they're fine. Some do want and need biblical counsel, but for many, it's really just 
expressing that frustration that's cathartic and, and they're fine. That's not what's happening here. Habakkuk does not feel fine getting this off his chest. Now, we see that later in the text that he's not fine. We don't necessarily know that here. But he's not simply venting. Venting is what you do to someone uh, or at someone because uh, you just need to be heard even though you know that they can't fix it. Because there's lots of things that, that I want to complain about and that people want to complain about to me that I just can't fix. But he's going to God. God can fix this. He wants God to fix this. In fact, he, he knows God so well that he knows that it's out of character for God to tolerate this evil. God's patient, he is. There's only so much evil he's going to put up with. Habakkuk knows this. So Habakkuk approaches God with great confidence, knowing that God can save him from this evil, with great confidence that God has the power and authority over this evil. But he's, he's in this fog right now. It, it seems that God doesn't hear. All Habakkuk can see is this evil and violence in front of him. Though Habakkuk is in the fog, there is something that's clear. And the clarity is what we see here in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arrive. What's clear is that evil is going around unchecked. The fog. God, you don't seem to hear me. You don't seem to see what's going on. What's clear is there's something wrong. Something very wrong in his country. How can there be a God when evil exists in such vast quantities? Many people ask that today, don't they? Some would say, I don't believe in God because just look at the evil around us. It is a good question, isn't it? How can there be a God when evil exists? God directs every step. Do you believe that? Habakkuk believed it. He believed it wholeheartedly. That's why he says, why do you make me see sin? Why do you, God, make it so that all I can see around me is sin? He's not accusing God of sin. What he's saying is that, God, you're in control. And all I see is sin around me, so therefore it must be because you're, you've got that in your plan. Why? He sees rampant iniquity, so pervasive, he can't possibly help but see it. It's so perverse, he can't help but cry out against it. And what does he see of God? He sees God ignoring it. Now, spoiler alert, he's wrong. God's not ignoring it. But that's what he sees. Do you ever feel like that? Habakkuk sees his nation imploding. Does that sound familiar?
So what do we do about it when we see evil everywhere? When we see the world around us calling that which is good evil and calling that which is evil good? Well, here's what Habakkuk does. He cries out to God. He laments to God. The tragedy in this passage is found in verse 4, that the law seems to be failing. God's word seems to be failing, even powerless. Verse 4, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Is God's law paralyzed? Y'all better be shaking your head no inside. <laughs> no, the law is not paralyzed. The law is not powerli- powerless. Are the, the wicked really overpowering the righteous? That's the imagery there as he says the, the wicked are surrounding the righteous. Are the wicked really overpowering the righteous? Now, if we're going to talk in terms of statistics and numbers, it might be so. Does wicked overpower righteous? No. But it sure looks like it from Habakkuk's perspective. Again, as we go further in the book, we'll see that God indeed is working in the background. He is resolving this. But Habakkuk just can't see it yet. He also says, justice never goes forth. Is it true that Justice delayed is justice denied. It's a more recent saying that justice delayed is justice denied. Habakkuk cannot see that true justice is happening, that it is on the horizon, that God is putting things in place to make it happen. But because he doesn't see it happening now, He kind of thinks that justice is being denied, that justice isn't happening. Because what he sees being called justice is actually perverted. It's actually gross. It's actually not justice. So he sees what's happening and he hates it. Because it's not just that sin is happening. It's that this is God's people. This is the nation of Israel. He's not talking about some pagan land far away. He's talking about his own people. This is a terrible place to end a passage, isn't it? Habakkuk doesn't realize it, but he's going to get a direct answer from God in short order. We have to remember Habakkuk's complaint here was not an on-the-spot blurting out of what he was feeling at that moment. This complaint is rooted in uh, witnessing this rampant evil over time, seeing this over and over again. All those times that he witnessed and pondered this great evil from his own nation and not seeing a response from God. Today we're going to end just short of God's response to handle this first complaint. How do we, the church, handle Habakkuk's complaint? Like I talked about earlier, there's a dilemma 
that, that the church faces because we are so far removed from the Old Testament. We're so far removed from, uh, from the time and place of this writing. We're so far removed from the culture in which Habakkuk wrote. Um, how are we going to see the church being impacted by this passage? How does Christ fulfill this passage? Well, if we, if we take Habakkuk's complaint and boil it down, he sees sin, he sees injustice, which is a sin, and perhaps most of all, he hates that it seems that God is not paying attention. Do you ever feel like that? We do, don't we? We feel like that we're surrounded by, in, by sin in a, in a nation, in a world that is not getting better. God's people long for righteousness. And that's really what brings about this whole conversation in Habakkuk, is that the prophet hates what he sees because he longs for what is right. We long for righteousness. We long, we desire, we deeply want to see, actually, sometimes in our sinful state, we want to see consequences for the evil that's around it, so perhaps it would slow it down or stop it. Really, what we long for is, is the fulfillment of the declaration that John the Baptist made in John chapter 1. You remember that? John the Baptist sees uh, Jesus uh, from, a, from a bit of a distance, and cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We long for sin to be gone. Well, has Jesus taken away the sin of the world? Everyone's sitting there going, I don't know how to answer that. Because the answer is yes, he died on the cross for sin, for all the sin of the world. But is there still sin in the world? Yes. So is Jesus the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world? Yes, because he has fulfilled that part of the promise. He has died for our sin. And all who have come to him in faith have had their sin removed. But do we still live in a world of sin? Yes. Sin still fills the world. But not for long. We're closer to Jesus' return than we've ever been. I can say that every day and it will still be true. He will come again. One day the righteous king, the just king, the one who will rule with righteousness and peace he will set up his rule and reign in this world. And in my heart and sometimes on my lips, I say, but why not now? If life weren't hard, we would not long for him the way that we should. And whether we're talking about uh, the, the context that's brought out from our passage, the, the, the context of life being hard because of sin around us, or we're talking about uh, the physical ailments of life, just aging, things 
in this world not working like they should, which is also part of the curse of sin on the world. If life were not difficult, we would not long for Jesus the way we should. And that's what we see happening in Habakkuk chapter 1 this morning. Because of the sin around him, Habakkuk longs for his God even more than he would have otherwise. Life is hard. We're not going to get around that. But God is good. He is in control. And we can trust him. So, come back next week. We'll see what God's actually doing behind the scenes. Actually, go ahead and read ahead. I think we're going through verse 11 next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come quickly. The world and its sinfulness weighs heavily on us. The remaining sinfulness within us as believers weighs on us heavily. Father, never let us get comfortable with sin. Don't let us be okay with the evil that we see around us. But rather help that sin feed our desire for you. And then help us to express it. Whether it's like Habakkuk who, who cries out to you personally. Lord, we can do that. We can pray. We can lament. We can boldly come into your presence and and express to you how much we long to be set free from the evil around us. We can also dig into your word and be reminded of the many promises that are yet to be fulfilled, the promise of life with Jesus forever. Apart from the corruptness of this world, Lord, we can look to your church to find comfort and help and hope. Father, whatever response we get out of this passage, Lord, help us to find our deepest desires be centered on you and you alone. Thank you for the boldness that Habakkuk had to, to go to you and, and confront you with, uh, with what he saw clearly and even with the things that he didn't see clearly. Father, sometimes you do withhold your answer and sometimes you do withhold your help. Lord, help us to have faith when we don't understand what you're doing. Help us to be people who trust you through the trials of life, through the, the sorrows of life, and through the struggles with sin. We'll give you the praise and glory for how you work that out in our lives. In Jesus' name.